Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out, right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas, which is associated with a lot of things. World-class entertainment, 24-7 gambling, gourmet food, fun, and more. That's been true for decades, but back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the mob was also part of the equation. Today, you'll hear the story of Frank Balistrieri, a Midwestern mobster who was very involved in mid-century Vegas. Wayne Klingman researched his life and times and wrote the definitive book on the godfather of Milwaukee, You'll meet Wayne today. Our regulars are here again with their mission to bring Vegas home to you. Michael Shackelford, the Wizard of Odds, is with us. We've got food covered, as always, with Chef Justin Wells and barbecue master Mike Ross. Beverages are handled by your Vegas sommelier, Matt Leos, and Flipping Vegas's Gady Madrano discusses real estate. And on the Sports Rockin' Tours... We finish our conversation regarding John Gruden, Al Davis, and Raider history. First up, your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Today, we continue to discuss ways to bring back Vegas. How about Derek Stevens, the owner of the D, the Golden Gate, and the soon-to-be Circa? He gave away a couple thousand flights to Las Vegas. I, I, I guess it was popular because it went in no time. Yeah. Yep. He uh, started with a thousand. Interestingly, one-way flights, which if you know casino culture, that's always the idea. You bring them in and then you don't give them an easy way to get back and get home. Uh, they used to do that with escalators and people movers where the escalator, the, all the escalators would just be moving in one direction into the casino. And if you wanted to leave, it'd be a staircase out. But uh, yeah, so those thousand went probably in 90 minutes. He did another 1,000 flights, and people just ate it up. Uh, I, I am not surprised because Derek Stevens understands you're not just supporting, you know, and he even said you don't have to stay here. If you take advantage of these flights, you don't have to stay at our casinos. We'd love you to, obviously. But I think he gets the bigger picture of this is really about making people feel welcome in Vegas, making sure they feel safe and comfortable coming back, and making it easier for them to get here because – uh, Vegas is going to be hurting because of the travel restrictions and flights that are not coming from, you know, major markets right now. So I think it, it was just, it, it wasn't just in support of casinos and hotels in Vegas. It was also in support of the airline industry. So for one uh, company to buy, buy up 2000 tickets, I think was a vote of confidence in the airlines too. Uh, but he, he is a showman. He is a good marketer. And I'm going to venture this cost him probably a quarter million dollars, maybe more, to get all these tickets. But I think he will reap the benefits of that for the days and the weeks and the months to come. Thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter at VitalVegas. Time now, as Mr. Peabody used to say, to set the Wayback Machine for Las Vegas in the 1950s. If you come to Las Vegas... Of course, you always want to visit the Mob Museum because people just seem to love talking about the mob. And we have somebody 
today to talk about a particular mobster that you might not know the name of, but you should. His name is Frank Balistrieri, and our guest is Wayne Quigman, who wrote the book The Life and Times of Frank Balistrieri, The Last Most Powerful Godfather of Milwaukee. Well, Wayne, welcome. When it comes to Frank, a lot of people don't know who he is, but he is very important when we're talking about Las Vegas. Absolutely, sir. I think he is very much unknown, which is the way I like to have, have it kept. And I think without Frank and his connections to Vegas, especially Alan Glick and the Teamsters, we wouldn't have the Vegas that we have today, sir. Well, it's really interesting, you know, as I went through your book and so forth, he's a guy that worked his way through the ranks and really dominated a city like Milwaukee. People might not think about Milwaukee when they think of the mafia, but actually he kind of ran the town for a long time. He did. Um, Frank ran the town from the, from the 60s on to his final incarceration in prison for being caught up with the skim. And, and Frank kind of came up the easy way. He married into the family, literally. He married the daughter of the godfather before him. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the easy way to do it, right? You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. You marry the boss's daughter, and the road is pretty much well paved. Not to say he was not a monster, because he certainly was. Not to say that he couldn't do the bad things, because I believe he certainly did. You don't call him Mad Bomber for nothing. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. His nickname is the Mad Bomber, and that wasn't about his football long throws, was it? <laughs> no, it was not. It seemed that more than one person who he had disagreements with tended to blow up in cars. In fact, there's a famous story where one man was driving down the road. His car was coming in problems. He was not sure what's going on. So he took it to the gas station, and long and behold, in his engine, they found 12 sticks of dynamite. I wonder why he picked that particular, was that sort of a mafia thing that you wanted to have a particular style in terms of doing the hits? Well, in my opinion, it's before the RICO Act and the other laws really putting you in prison for using dynamite. It's a pretty easy way to make sure someone died because you can miss with a bullet. You can hit him and wound him and anything else, right? You put a few sticks of dynamite in his car and it blows up, say, near his gas tank. Yeah, he was uh, named, I know, by Fortune Magazine is uh, the 17th on the list of the 50 biggest mafia bosses. And I always find it intriguing how they worked among each other, because that organization didn't stop at the borders of Wisconsin. No, what's interesting is that not only was he number 17th going in the Forbes, but he came really close to having a seat on the Crime Commission, right? That meant he had to have money, he had to have power, he had to have influence. And for Milwaukee, most people don't think that would be the case. But, you know, Milwaukee in the day was a rather interesting city. Because, well, we are in the Great Lakes, right? So you have the shipping things going in. He had a little bit of union stuff going on. But also he had a large community of Italians, the Polish, and other immigrants that liked to gamble. So he had that thing, too, going on. He had the money. And because he had a close working relationship with the Chicago outfit, he had that muscle, too. Because if you remember from the book, and definitely it's reported and the Freedom of Information Act returns that we got, Kansas City did not like him a lot. It wasn't the fact that he had had backup from the Chicago outfit from, say, people such as Milwaukee Phil. Frank would have never made it very far. But he had the friendship and the business relationships with other more powerful people that made sure he was going to be okay. Well, he was no dummy either. I mean, he had a college education, went to law school for a few months and so forth. So this wasn't a guy that was just kind of a thug that fell into this position. He was smart. Absolutely. And if you look at the Vegas skim and how they did it, and you look at Alan Glick, you'll also find out that one, if not both of his sons, worked as attorneys for Alan Glick. More with Wayne Klingman in a moment. 
Let's check in now with the Wizard of Odds, Michael Shackelford. I know a lot of the hotels have people to give uh, tips and teach you how to play these games. Is that a smart place for people to start? Because from what I understand, they always give you the basics of it that you can take your game up from there. I applaud those gaming guides. I think for the most part, they are pretty good. I find issues with all of them. And I think they could be a lot more forthcoming with advice. Same thing with lot, in lots of these hotels, they will have a gaming channel that endeavors to explain the rules of the games. And that's a good start. I think that they could, it would be a nice gesture if they gave the players some advice, but usually they don't. Also, I have sat in on some of these gaming lessons that they give in the casinos. And again, I applaud the effort, but I think that it would be nice if they gave you some advice. For example, you know, if they were giving a craps lesson to advise players, here are the good bets. Here are the sucker bets in the middle of the table. But of course, they never do that. Thanks, Michael. Back with Wayne Klingman, author of The Life and Times of Frank Balistrieri, in a moment, along with a visit from Chef Justin Wells and barbecue master Mike Ross. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. To re-emerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing VirusSafe Pro a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy-to-read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com. Medicare rules are confusing. They should be. There are over 130,000 pages of regulations. There's Part A through D, Medicare Advantage, and Medigap. According to the CMS, there are government programs available that can help you pay for your medical expenses. Choosing the right Medicare plan is a really big deal. The wrong choice can cost you a lot of money, and the right choice can put more money in your pocket. Call one of our licensed representatives today. At 65 Plus Medicare, our free service can show you a plan that will maximize your Medicare benefits, ensure you are taking advantage of all available government assistance programs, and save you money. Plus, call right now and get a free report on how to avoid costly Medicare mistakes. Call now. 800-253-8126. 800-253-8126. 
That's 800-253-8126. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. As you know, great food is part of the Las Vegas experience, and we want to package it all for you to take home. Chef Justin Wells is here to discuss what you're going to need to bring Vegas cooking to your home. Justin, what are the kitchen essentials that I need when I want to start cooking and I want to get more into it? I get this question a lot, and I always find that I'm leaning towards the question of budget. You know, I kind of always ask people, you know, did you just win the lotto, or are you looking for stuff that you can kind of pick up on the cheap on Amazon? And I've had a lot of friends that just open their laptop on Amazon and say, you know, order me the stuff that I need. And, you know, I think, like anything else, a good sharp knife, a great wooden cutting board is always nice. I tend to like wood. I know that people tend to also use the the plastic stuff, which is a little bit easier to clean, which is nice. In my home, I use I actually use the wooden pullouts, uh, which I think are good. Um, you know, lately, uh, you know, sous vide has gotten really popular. So you know, for about a hundred bucks, you can buy one of those. I think those are really nice. I kind of refer to them as the 21st century crock pot. You know, growing up, everybody you know, had a crock pot in their home and, and you tend to use those quite a bit. I find that that's kind of taking place of that. Um, you know, a nice set of pans. And, and I always recommend that people go out and just hand pick the pans that they want. I mean, the sets are really nice, but you wind up with a bunch of stuff that you never use. It's kind of like buying an all-in-one knife block. I tend to tell people, hey, look, just buy a knife block by itself and then hand pick some knives that you actually want to go out and use. I mean, you don't need... 27 different knives and people are actually shocked at how few i mean i'll cook an entire meal i'll use one knife or maybe two and you know you go in these homes and people have this 87 piece knife (laughs) block and and 79 of them they've never actually removed from the knife block so while they look cool sitting on the counter they don't really do all that much for you you know and i really like caffalon pans i think those are great value you know stuff that's going to last you a long time relatively easy to clean um, and then, of course, if you have money and want to buy, you know, Malvier, Cooper Knox, copper stuff, I think is absolutely gorgeous. And I tend to buy one piece of that a year kind of as a treat to myself in December, um, kind of as a Christmas gift. And, and I think, again, that's one of those I sort of lust after it all year and I decide which one I want and then add a piece to my collection. Le Creuset or Staub for, for like a great uh, braising pan, I think, is another option there. So, you know. Have an egg pan, have a roasting pan, have a saute pan, have a brazer from Le Creuset. I, I think individually picking your pieces and spreading that money across stuff that you'll use is a much smarter aspect. A good digital thermometer is key. I mean, anytime I do a cooking class, I tend to tell people the first thing they should buy is one of those if they don't have one. And make sure it's accurate. Make sure you use it because you can temp anything. I mean, you can temp a cake. I mean, you, you can temp stuff to see how hot it is. It doesn't matter. Even if you're microwaving chicken nuggets for your kid, you can temp it to see if it's hot and correct. Thanks, Chef. Let's get back to our conversation now with Wayne Klingman, author of The Life and Times of Frank Balistrieri. Well, let's talk about the Vegas skim because I think that's really important. How did he get involved with Las Vegas, and what is the Vegas skim? The Vegas skim is, generally speaking, is the ability that the mob had from taking money from the casinos before it was properly counted and the taxes paid. Yeah, and how did the banks get involved? I mean, I, I understand <laughs> that the, the, the banks are, you're figuring, how do they get in, in the middle of this stuff? Well, that's interesting, sorry, for, for speculation. 
because if I would ever do the next book in the series would be Franco's The Vegas, that'd be something I really want to look at because bankers are no fools. And my belief, my strong belief that the banks in Vegas are definitely not foolish. And they would have done a lot more due diligence. So my question is, what banks were used, what other connections may have had to Mapsters? I know they worked with the Teamsters, and we all know that the Teamsters had a relationship, some of the Teamsters had a very interesting relationship with some of the Mapsters. Did that smooth the way where the banks don't care where they got their money from? That were many of the banks in Vegas at that time were owned or controlled by members of the Latter-day, Latter-day Saints? Is there such a thing as the Mormon Mafia? would be all subjects I would find fascinating to look into because most of those loans went the same, from, into the same field banks to make happen. And obviously, they made money. How much money do they make from it, and what connections do they all have with the map and with the different banks and the teamsters? Didn't end up well for Frank, though, well, when you look at it. Once the mid-'80s hit, did battle with the law and... It, it really stopped him from going further, which he was kind of targeted to to, to be a higher level mobster. But it, he got he got caught up in that, uh, and uh, really the whole family uh, they took quite a hit. When Frank put out, he put out under the circumstances that his sons would not be charged, right? But they would go to prison for extortion. I believe, trying to extort vending machines. An FBI mole got involved. I think that led to the fact that the the FBI were able to charge the brothers with extortion uh, in the vending machine business, and that put them in jail for a few years. Frank himself would go to jail as part of the uh, Vegas skim for, I think, over 10 years, and he would get out basically in time to die. Incredible story. How do we get a hold of your book? Because I think people that love um, the mob stories and so forth, this is a great one and one you haven't heard before. So how, how do we get a hold of your book? Well, my, all my stuff, all my works can be found on Amazon. If they would want to go to Amazon and, and type in Wayne Klingman, you know, they can see Frank. And Frank's available in paperback and in Kindle and in audio book. All money I get from selling a Frank, right? Go and help pay for the cat rescue that we have here. Last week, we discussed the best grills available for your outdoor barbecue. Now you got to start it, but with what? Let's discuss that with barbecue master Mike Ross of Jesse Ray's Barbecue. No, it's so it's so funny, and I'm going back to my competition roots. Is that this is like the this is the the one of the biggest debates. That you know that you hear in uh, in barbecue is if you use lighter fluid or not. <laughs> you know you'll hear so many people that are against it and like, no, don't put a lighter fluid on your food. You know it'll wreck your food. And then you know you go out, you watch, you watch TV, and you watch you know like a pitmaster show, and then you see, um, uh, so you know the world's greatest barbecue or a Myron Mixon, you know just dousing his coals in lighter fluid, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and him like destroying everybody. So, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't think that, I don't maybe I don't know maybe I maybe I've never seen too much of a difference personally because it burns off and and you're not using usually when you're using charcoal you're not using charcoal to flavor the meat you're just using charcoal for heat the wood is what flavors the meat and you don't put 
lighter fluid on your wood, you know? Yeah, right. So, but there is other, like, there's, you know, this is 2020. There's so many ways to light your smokers now. For There's, you know, propane torches. There's these little white cubes that you light in it, and it just lights it for you. You know, there's so many, there's so many different ways to light your grills now. And uh, so the effect is minimal. Thanks, Mike. And if you're here in Vegas or are headed here, make sure to visit Jesse Ray's Barbecue. And if you mention Vegas Never Sleeps, they're going to take 15% off your bill. Now, that's what we call winning big in Vegas. Remember, all our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hi, this is Andy Martello, Las Vegas entertainer, award-winning author, voice of the Las Vegas Aviators, and generally tired human being. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Okay, we've discussed great food. How about great wine? And can you get it at a reasonable price? Let's ask your Vegas sommelier, Matt Leos. There's there's so much great wine out there, and more great wine today than ever in history. There's everybody's learned the recipe to make great wine. And there's so much quality wine being made that you can find for under 50 bucks retail. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what do you recommend? I mean, let's start talking about that. People come That's, out to visit to Vegas. People they always want to go ask this cool? question. It's so difficult to answer that question because wine's a lot like music or art. It, it depends on your particular mood or your... What you're into. Well, it's all about food pairings, too. So, Yeah, that's important as well. So, okay. Not as important to me now as it used to be. Why? Um, because I think, that, I think that wine depends on the wine. It does. But wine works with so many different types of food. Food and wine, it's very easy to pair food and wine. There are certain things like asparagus, artichokes, uh, garlic, eggs, these are difficult to pair with all wine. Right. But for the most part, you have a beautiful plate of uh, braised short ribs, for instance, with, um, I don't know, some polenta. Sounds and good. It's delicious. <laughs> um, so many wines would work with this. There's so many red wines, not just Syrah or Cabernet Sauvignon. You can Grenache here from a warm climate, like Grenache from Australia, for instance. Do you think too many people just kind of go automatically to the Cabernet, you know, I mean, Cabernet yes, Sauvignon, because, right? That's automatic. You got a yeah. steak Cabernet. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's unfortunate because there's so many other varietals that are similar to Cabernet Sauvignon in its flavor profile and tannin structure. Tannin structure is probably what draws a lot of people to Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, it's also marketing. Marketing is a very powerful tool in, in wine sales. Um, but there's so many different grape varietals on the planet uh, that are as good, if not better, than Cabernet Sauvignon and have longevity like Cabernet Sauvignon. Thanks, Matt. Let's see. We've covered fine dining, barbecue, and wine. 
How about dessert? In Las Vegas, there's no question. There is a ton, a ton of competition between great restaurants. There's all sorts of good restaurants and great pastries. And we're going to talk with one of the very best pastry chefs in not only Las Vegas, but in the United States. She was pastry chef of the year for the Nevada Restaurant Association. Her name is Bridget Contreras, and she's the pastry chef for STK restaurant in the Cosmopolitan, a great place. Well, first of all, I read your story, uh, Bridget, and I found it really interesting that when you first got into it, pastries was something that came along later. It was. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Um, Yes, it definitely was something I fell into and I learned to love. It wasn't something that I wanted to do in the beginning, but now I do. Well, we're so glad you did. Was it something, I know you you trained over at the Wilshire Restaurant, right, in Los Angeles. Was it something where you realized as you got into it, hey, I'm pretty good at this? That's exactly what it was. Um, I started creating, people were tasting and telling me, you're pretty good at this, like you should move forward with it. And I just, you know, always wanted to be a big bad chef in the kitchen and didn't want to do pastries. So, you know, after a while, uh, as the career kept going and people were telling me, you know, you should stick with it, I decided, you know what, I am. I I am pretty good at this, so I'm going to stick with it and see where it takes me. Well, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, people remember that piece of pastry as much as they do any meal they have. And, you know, you don't just do sweet stuff, right? You also do some savory things. I saw you do a a side dish here uh, as well, uh, some sort of a tart or something. Sometimes, you know, uh, Chef Steven will ask me to help him out with, you know, the sweet side of the savory dishes, which I will. You know, you talk about Chef Steven, and I think that's important. You guys must work like a team, right? And how closely do you work? I mean, is it something that you kind of are thinking together in kind of a tandem of these meals or what? Uh, no, he usually handles the savory side, and I have full control of the pastry side. But we are in the kitchen every single day, <laughs> seven days a week. <laughs> yes, we do get along. He's a great guy to work with. And we've been together for over four years now. So, Well, it's a real treat to come to the Cosmopolitan. It's a great place. So somebody has a big steak dinner. You know, I love the ribeye. You know, I'm, they're there. They're eating it. They've had a great meal. They want to top it off with something special. What kind of recommendations? And I know part of it is it, it depends on what time of year, too, doesn't it? It it surely does. Um, I do tend to change the menu with the season. So depending on what time of the year you come in, um, we'll have different options. But we do have a few signature dishes that always stay on the menu year long. And they are? Uh, We do have a warm chocolate chip cookie with vanilla ice cream, a little bit of caramel sauce and hot fudge. And we always will have our sweet potato donuts with the maple glaze and candied pecans. That's the perfect way to end your meal here at STK. Do you have any specials? Do you do something sometimes that's just a little bit different? And and is that kind of fun, too? Yes, I do uh, change it up sometimes. I love working with chocolate. So we uh, right now have a flourless chocolate cake that's perfect for gluten-free guests. It's layers of chocolate fudge, chocolate pudding, whipped cream, and covered in a dark chocolate glaze. So very uh, decadent for the chocolate lovers. Okay, you got to tell us too. Do you learn how to sell it? Because I know people are listening to this and going, oh my God, <laughs> for all the food, foodie, just people that just love great food. It's pretty exciting. Thank you. I think it just comes with the years of uh, explaining components and describing it to a lot of people. You just, I think it comes with the passion too. If you have the passion for it, it just flows easily when you're describing it to the guests. One of the things we're really excited about is you were working for STK in Los Angeles. They asked you to come out here, and you were a bit hesitant. Uh, What were you hesitant about? And more importantly, how do you feel about it now that you're here? You did your research. (laughs) 
Yes, I was. I just never thought I would leave California. I've just been, you know, that's my home, born and raised. Um, he pursued me, you know, for a while, and I just never thought I would live in Las Vegas. So I said, hey, let me, you know, give it a shot for a year and see where it takes me. And, and I'm on year four, and I don't think I want to move now. We're glad you're here. Yeah, don't move. <laughs> you, you, you can't tease people with that food and then come back and say, well, he's not there anymore, you know. But uh, last question. Does it get your creative juices going in the fact that you live in a town where you're a great chef and you work for a great chef, but you're all, they're also great chefs not only just in this hotel, but up and down the strip and around town. Does that kind of motivate you or you know, what does that feel like? You know, it keeps me on my toes to be creative. You always, at least for a pastry chef, you always have to be in a good place to be creative. We're kind of like writers. And to have such good chefs around me, it motivates you to, you know, come up with bigger and better things. It's always, business never sleeps. And there's always something new and coming. So you just have to be on your toes and do your research and test your recipes and hope that something amazing comes you talked about like like with writers and so forth. I'm always fascinated by people that can do that. Like I, I can cook stuff, but not like you can, right? And that thing. Is it a certain thing where as you, as you do it there, are you constantly trying to sharpen those skills, whatever it is, to pick up some things? Because I would imagine people think, oh, you do the same thing every night. It gets routine. And yet I don't see that from you at all in what I've read. You know, we're a special breed. Like I said, you do have to be in a good mindset to come up with these creative ideas. Like sometimes I'm laying in bed and I think of, chocolate or I think of mint and these ideas just pop in my head so I get up and I jot them down and I come into the restaurant and I just start testing things out and you know I that's how I come up with my dishes it's just trial and error trial and error you want to be there for those trials as STK <laughs> restaurant at the Cosmopolitan make sure you save room for dessert because uh, <laughs> the pastry will be something you will remember Bridget thanks so much for being with us thank you so much for having me Stephen thanks Bridget Time now to welcome our expert on real estate in the Vegas market from the TV show Flipping Vegas, Gady Madrano. Now, Gady, everyone uses Zillow, which features a suggested selling price. But you say you simply cannot rely on that as legitimate. But again, that may not be applicable to your particular home or to your neighborhood or to the comparables and what they're looking at. So that's why you really need to talk to an expert because what you're seeing is a very tunnel vision. And also, this is a home you love. You're not seeing it objectively. I don't care who you are. You're not, even my own home. And I'm as objective as they come, I think, But because there's so many homes. But, you know, hey, well, I love that tile. And I remember picking that out. And, and it, you know, it was special ordered. I'm like, yeah, but that was like five years ago. And there's an entirely different trend going on. And where, where does that, how, you have to calibrate things correctly. So, you know, there are a number of things you need at the very least someone that's objective. Thanks, Gady. You can reach Gady at gadyrealestate.com. Up next, this week's edition of the Sports Rack on Tours. Today's subjects include more from former Raiders scout John Kingdon and sports writer Steve Corcoran discussing John Gruden and Al Davis. You listen to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. If you like sports, you'll love the Sports Tours. Each week, host Stephen Maggi sits down with someone who has an insider perspective on players, teams, games, or events from the world of sports. Who are these folks? People who were there and know how to weave their memories and observations into stories you'll want to hear. Listen each week on Vegas Never Sleeps, then visit the Sports Tours page on VegasNeverSleeps.com. 
When you go to Las Vegas, you have to know what you're going to go see, and there's no better place on the web to go than VitalVegas.com. You hear Scott Robin, our Vegas insider, every week. What are people going to find when they go to your site, Scott? Everything you need to know about Las Vegas, from shows and restaurants and a lot of inside dirt that you won't hear anywhere else. And a lot of photos, too, and a lot of snark, right? That is the case. (laughs) Yes. You can't miss it. VitalVegas.com. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to the Sports Rock on Tours. Today's Rock on Tours are John Kingdon, former scout for the Oakland Raiders and a close confidant of the late Al Davis, and Steve Corcoran, a veteran sports writer who's covered the Raiders for years. Up first, let's continue our discussion from last week with John Kingdon, talking about John Gruden's first stint coaching the Raiders. How difficult was it to bring in Rich Gannon? Because, yeah, he's not what you'd call Al Davis's quarterback, you know, that type of guy. He's not a Jim Plunkett in terms of the skill set and so forth. How did they convince him? Because I know that wasn't his first choice. No, it really wasn't. But, you know, at that point, there really wasn't a lot of quarterbacks uh, out there that fit what Al was looking for. And, in fact, uh, it came down to Jeff Garcia, who, had, who, who was coming off a great career in Canada, and, uh, and Rich Again, I turned out I wasn't around when these went on, but I heard Jeff just had a, an awful, awful workout. And then the other story I heard was Paul Hackett was a great, great fan of Rich Gannon's, and uh, John had worked with Paul Hackett, and Paul called John and, and was really sold him and said, "This is this guy's going to be perfect for your system." And and I really Al didn't have a, a fallback situation uh, to go with besides Rich, and you know it worked out great. And you know we had drafted even we thought we had drafted the perfect backup for uh, for Rich in uh, Marcus Tuiasasopo. You know, and then when he got his opportunity, they switched offenses. So uh, so you know, the key is you, you get the right quarterback and the right head coach and the right system. You know, a la New England, you know, a la Pittsburgh, and, and we had it. You know, for that period. Uh, it's it's so sad. And, you know, there was a, a point where J- John, although he made a huge change right from the start, 1999, there were seven or yeah, seven and eight. They're playing the Chiefs. The Chiefs are going to go in the playoffs if they win that game. And they beat him. And I remember that one of the great games in Raider history, really, with this fantastic effort that sort of saved his job at that point. Right. Because Al was thinking of making another change. Well, I wasn't even aware of that at that point. And, and you know, it's funny when Hugh Jackson became the head coach, he had uh, all the coaches and scouts together for dinner. And we, he said, go around the room and come up with your best game with the Raiders outside of, you know, winning the Super Bowl. And I remember it was Greg Beaker and Steve Wisniewski and I all brought up that game. We were down 17 nothing. It was the uh, Millennium game. Uh, we weren't going to go to the playoffs. The Chiefs were going to go to the playoffs. Kenny Shedd blocks a punt. And then Rich and Tim Brown. And Napoleon uh, Kaufman, all of them did it. But I wasn't aware at that point. But Al, but Al said it to me, and he said it to a number of people. He says, yep, it's good that John won that game because I was probably going to get rid of him if he hadn't won, which which, when I heard that, I was thinking, thank goodness he won. But I, <laughs> I, I found it hard to believe. But, you know, again, it wouldn't surprise me. But I think that was, you know, if there's an, uh, an object lesson in all of what's Al, you know, the history of Al, uh, you know, you had Madden there for 10 years and, and wins a Super Bowl. Tom Flores there nine years, wins two Super Bowls and should be in the Hall of Fame as well. And then you jumped around from Shanahan to Shell to White to Bugle. Now we got some stability with John, and suddenly we, we go back to Bill Callahan, to North Turner, to Art Shell, to 
Lake Kiffin to Tom Cable to Hugh Jackson. So I think, you know, I think, and, and the good teams realize you get the right coach, stay with them. And, you know, in retrospect, you should have said to John, give him a blank uh, contract and just tell him fill in the figures, which evidently Mark Davis did as well. What I don't understand, and I'd like you to explain it because you talk about patience. It took a long time before Madden got the Super Bowl. I mean, there were great Raider teams that were always competitive, but it took a while. He was patient there. He stayed with Flores for a long time. Is it the fact that Gruden was the rock star? Is that the thing that irritated him where a guy like Madden or Flores were more low-key, at least in terms of, can't call John Madden low-key, but you know, you didn't see their faces on billboards and that kind of thing? Or is it just the difference between Al in the 60s, 70s, and 80s versus Al uh, you know, in the 21st century? Well, you know, we actually have another chapter called Saving Face, and we talk about the three people that he really had problems with, and he shouldn't have, but he did. We're great people in the organization from uh, for starting with, you know, Kenny Stabler, you know, all of famer, great player. And there was obviously issues there. And then Marcus Allen, truly one of my favorites and uh, as competitive uh, a player as ever was. And then John Gruden. And, and I think the thing they all had in common was they all were becoming the face of the organization. And I really think that that, uh, that kind of wore on Al, and it really bothered him. And, uh, you know, there was a story where Al's driving by the uh, south on the 880 freeway in Oakland, and there's a big billboard uh, with John's face on it, you know, with uh, promoting the radio station. You know, and Al says, who the hell hired him? And, you know, who the hell gets him the players? And it really bothered him. And then, you know, Steve Corkman told the story uh, where Al, you know, when Al was walking by in practice coming off the field, usually the press would gravitate over towards him. And, you know, asked for his input on things. And uh, and he told the story that Gruden was there and everyone's talking to John and Al's walking by and they ignored Al. <laughs> yeah, really can't have it. <laughs> yeah, and they could, uh, he said, wait a minute, uh, what's going on here? So, unfortunately, I think that really became a factor in the... Uh, and and uh, led to the uh, you know the last ten years of uh, real problems. We talked a little bit about Al Davis with John. Sports writer Steve Corcoran is here to add a little more about Al. Steve is the author of Al Davis Behind the Raiders Shield. Steve, somewhere along the line, Davis became enamored with speed so much so that it started to cloud his decision making. And it became the easiest thing for him to do. Would be to look in the books, the Mel Kuyper books or any of the draft notes that scouts put together, and to just go to the column where it had 40 times and to say, okay, say we, we need a receiver, this is the guy that ran fastest, we want him. Is that It became hard at the end for Al to watch a lot of film and study everything. So, yeah, he, uh, you know, the latter part of his uh, life there, speed became the one thing that he clung to the most. And um, but But overall, yeah. Speed is something that he loved and that he was at the forefront of that. And the thinking was that if you have Marcus Allen, yes, he's a wonderful player. He's a Hall of Fame player. He can catch, he can block, he can run, and he can might get you 132 yards, but it might be on 26 carries. Bo Jackson, at any time when we give him the ball, he can run for 80 yards. He can run over Brian Bosworth. If that becomes uh, – if that's why – fell in love with a guy like Bo is that he could change it, it, the complexion of a game on any time he touched the ball. And um, so speed in it and the deep pass were two of the ways that Al thought that he, you know, that he could take over a game at any time that they were always in a game and that it struck fear in, in the opposing teams. And so it was something that, uh, you know, that 
that that was part of what he looked for at every turn. Well, you know, you talk about striking fear and dominating. You heard that all the time. You have a chapter in the book. I think it's the second chapter called The Intimidator. It didn't matter how close you were to him or whatever. He was always looking for that edge over anybody, be it his best friend or his worst enemy. It was actually a little bit, like I say, it was almost kind of like a horror read in the sense that nothing would stop him. And I didn't know that about him until I read this book. Yeah, I've had uh, people who were mentioned in that book and who worked for Al for a lot of years said when they read that that they – yeah, you know, that their uh, breathing began to quicken again, and they uh, broke out in a cold sweat. Is that they were taken back to uh, those, you know, those instances in the book. But uh, yeah, he uh, ruled a certain way. He wanted you to be on your toes, and um, and if he asked you something, he didn't want you to just make up something because if you did, he was going to pounce on you. He uh, wanted you to have a take and he wanted you to have a reason why you offered offered that up and if you didn't know if you didn't know the answer to something you would better say i don't know but i'm gonna put in the time to find out and, um, well steve did you ever wonder about guys like you know you write a lot about john herrera and of course before him was Alo casal where these guys were as loyal as you could possibly be and he at times would humiliate him and stuff. What brought that loyalty onto those people to the point where, you know, they would stay in a difficult situation for years and years and years? Because he was great to work for. He was, uh, you know, he was a little difficult at times, but you begin to learn uh, what uh, triggered those. And so you avoided those and um, you knew that this was a man who was as passionate about the, uh, about the Raiders as anybody is passionate about anything. And that, that, and that in the end, that all of these guys wanted to win as much as Al. And so they just recognized that that was part of the process. And, uh, but, yeah, it was uh, John Herrera talks about it in there real early on that Al would uh, on a Friday say, uh, yeah, I think it's about time we part ways. So you, you look over the weekend and I'll look for you and uh it but this is it and he said the first time he was horrified you know he thought oh my goodness it, this is the end of my uh raider job here but he said he came back monday and al had calmed down a bit and he kept his job and then when al you know he would bring it up in subsequent years he would just kind of slough it off and uh so <laughs> but yeah he was uh he was exacting he was demanding and um there was a lot of pressure but if you showed the loyalty and the commitment to uh, help the Raiders win. He was going to do right by you in the long run. And so that's what those guys loved. Thanks, Steve. Go to our website and check out the Sports Tour page. And if you have a sports story you want to share with us, just contact me at Stephen at VegasNeverSleeps.com. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This is Stephen Madge reminding you to join us again at Vegas Never Sleeps, where you can take a little Vegas home with you. Vegas, here we go!